0: Today's financial editor on 930 WFMD was recorded at an earlier date. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray.
1: Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Hope your weekend's going well. And uh, as I mentioned right before the news break there, we were going to be jumping into our conversation. A friend of the program joins us occasionally here, Mr. Bill Bullard, uh, the chief executive officer for RCAF USA, which is uh, headquartered, headquartered excuse me, out in Billings, Montana. Um, and really, it's just uh, you know representing the uh, independent U.S. cattle producers and ranchers and farmers, um, the backbone of uh, of our country. And we like to get an update on what's going on in that area. How are you, Mr. Bullard?
0: Doing great, thank you, Chris.
1: Yeah, thanks for taking the time to come on. As always, I appreciate it. We like to get the, uh, the you know the the real scoop from you. So I guess we'll start. Um, just can you give us an an overall view of uh, how your members uh, of RCAF USA are getting along in this current environment?
0: Well, as consumers know, for the past many years, they've been paying super inflated prices for beef at the grocery store while cattle prices have been seriously depressed. But recently, we had a severe shock to the system, and that was a widespread drought that began in 2021. The drought caused the liquidation of our cattle herd, and so our cattle numbers, our supply is extremely tight right now and as a result we've seen temporary increases in the price of cattle so cattle producers today are receiving uh, nominal or uh, record high nominal prices for their cattle at the same time however their inputs have been increasing and skyrocketing so their diesel <clears throat> diesel fuel costs uh, feed costs, all our input costs are, are increasing as well. So even with the higher prices, we're still seeing an economic cost price squeeze affecting cattle producers. And as a result of this longer period of time that we saw these high beef prices and low cattle prices, we've lost a lot more, a lot more of our cattle producers here in the United States. And we don't know the exact number that we've lost. We're concerned that we've lost far more than we might be guessing. But what we do know is if we look at one segment of our live cattle supply chain, and that's the feedlot segment, that's the last uh, segment of the live cattle supply chain where the animal is fed just prior to harvest. We've lost another 1,000 of the small independent cattle feeders just between 2021 and 2022. So our industry continues to shrink. And so we're looking to Congress at the 2023 Farm Bill to make some significant reforms to restore competition to the cattle industry so cattle producers can uh, continue to have the opportunity to be profitable and consumers can continue to have an affordable, abundant, and uh, wholesome food supply. That never, never ends, uh, as well, as we saw it did end in uh, 2020 as a result of the COVID pandemic. Consumers went to the grocery store and for the first time in history, could not buy the protein they needed for their families. And we need to correct that and correct it permanently.
1: Well, and I think it's important that people understand what you said. It's just that uh, you want things to be more competitive. You're not looking out uh, or looking for a handout or, you know, any freebies anywhere. You just want... A level playing field, and I know it's been very, um, you know, unlevel for a, a long, long time. So that's why we like get, getting you on to give us an update. So you're going to Congress, um, of course. I get your uh, emails as anybody can for free if they just go to the the website, and um, you you let us know what you're lobbying for, what you're trying to get, what, your, you know, what the benefits would be. Um, how much help are you getting from elected, official, uh, elected officials these days?
0: Well, the answer is not enough. And you're absolutely right, we're not asking for any government subsidies, we're simply asking for reforms of the structure of the marketplace so that competition can flourish. And one of the chief reforms we're asking for is mandatory country origin labels. We want consumers to be able to distinguish which beef at the grocery store was born, raised, and harvested in the United States versus which beef was in whole or in part imported from a foreign country. And we do import from 20 different countries. Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Australia, New Mexico, New Zealand, uh, Mexico, Canada. So there's a variety of beef choices in the grocery store, but consumers don't know it. So what we need to do to impart competitive market forces is give the consumer the power to choose from which country they want their beef produced. When they make that choice, uh, they can increase demand for U.S. cattle by choosing the USA product, or they would increase demand for cattle produced in a foreign country. That would be the consumer's choice. And that's how competition can be reignited in an industry where competition has all has been all but purged from the entire live cattle supply chain. And in Congress, we have uh, a bill introduced, Senate Bill 52. So we have some senators that are supporting uh, cattle producers. They include Senator Thune from South Dakota and Senator Rounds from South Dakota, Senator Tester from Montana, Senator Booker from New Jersey, just to name a few. And we've got some support in the House but not enough. And uh, our adversaries are extremely powerful and they want the status quo. They want to continue to, to reshape the cattle industry. So it looks like the poultry industry. And we call that chickenization where they try to vertically integrate the entire industry from birth to plate or the poultry case from egg to plate. And we're trying to prevent that from occurring. Uh, but unfortunately most members of Congress continue to side with the multinational meat packers and all of their meat packing lobbies. And uh, so we're, we're up against some formidable opponents.
1: Okay, so everybody listening, um, whether you're new to the program and have heard these conversations with Mr. Bullard before, if you're brand new, which, by the way, if you're brand new, welcome. It's great to have you. Um, they're just shaking their head like, wait a minute, this is common sense. If I go, look, if I go to a store and I want to see where my T-shirt was made, I look at the tag and it'll say Indonesia, Vietnam, USA, whatever. And um, it's just common sense. There's people, I mean, I'm like that. I try to buy as much USA product and service as humanly possible. We actually go out of our way at our home to do that. So why, again, people are listening, thinking, wait a minute, I'm going down the aisle in the, uh, in the grocery store and I'm grabbing uh, some beef some protein. And I'm assuming because they are, that it was, uh, that it was probably, it probably comes from the United States and that's just the opposite, right?
0: That's right. So yeah, 20% of the beef is uh, from imported. That's, beef.
1: Yeah. So then the other part is, and you mentioned lobbyist and, um, and, and you know, the, the kind of rolling the rock up the hill against all the big multinationals, that's money. Right. If we were simplify it for everybody, that's people that run for office that take donations, and they're looking for the big money.
0: That's right. Okay. And it, yes. So how? So if you look at at how that happens, where all of your clothing is labeled as to the country of origin, what it simply reveals is that the the lobbyists for the textile industry were not as powerful as the lobbyist in the meatpacking industry, because the textile industry could not overcome the consumer's desire to know where their clothing was produced in the cattle industry. Unfortunately, the meatpackers possess sufficient power to hold Congress at bay, and they are able to um, subjugate the consumer's desire to know where their beef comes from. And they've been successful at it for years.
1: So, um, you know, we, we talk about this, but you know, how, uh, what's the current strategy to change? And I know it's nothing new, probably, and earth-shattering, unless I miss something. But what's the current strategy to change that?
0: Continued uh, public awareness. Uh, and so everything we do tries to focus and create awareness for the need for consumers to know where the beef is from. And the big obstacle that we have, of course is that all the beef that is imported into the United States is eligible for a U.S. inspection sticker. So a consumer looks at that inspection sticker and says, you know, inspected by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they naturally assume then that that must be a domestic product. That inspection sticker, however, does not denote origin. All beef is labeled with that, whether it came from Costa Rica or the United States. And so creating consumer awareness and then encouraging consumers to help us because there simply aren't enough cattle producers left in the United States to do this on their own. We need to partner with consumers and we've been working with consumer groups to accomplish just that.
1: Perfect. We're going to squeeze in a quick break and we'll talk more about that, uh, what you're actually, you know, how that's working out with that partnership. Because to me, that um, if you're not getting help from the politicians uh, and you're up against the multinationals, then you do kind of, I'm sure, have to go grassroots and we'll talk about that.
2: Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide do no, escape from reality
0: Open your eyes No matter where you listen or how you listen WFMD. You're listening to 930 WFMD.
1: This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, wrapping up the uh, the show for this week. Uh, Always glad to have... Uh, a friend of the program, Mr. Bill Bullard, he is the CEO of RCAF USA. Uh, they're the ones fighting for the independent U.S. cattle producer out there, um, headquartered in Billings, Montana. Uh, Mr. Bullard's been in this position since uh, April of 2001, so, and he, before that, was a kale cow-calf rancher himself in uh, South Dakota. So, uh, Mr. Bullard, just give us uh, some, uh, some quick overview examples of how you're partnering with the public.
0: Well, we're working with uh, some national consumers groups like the Consumers Federation of America, Consumers Union, National Consumers League. And they all understand the importance of mandatory country of origin labeling. So we're working closely with them uh, on the legislation. And we've called together a large coalition that actually includes the Senate sponsors of the bill. And we meet every two weeks and talk about uh, you know, creating more awareness and gaining more support for the measure. And one of the big challenges in Congress is the first reaction is, That uh, they say that, well, we cannot inform our domestic consumers as to the origins of beef because this international tribunal in Geneva, Switzerland, known as the World Trade Organization, has issued an adverse ruling and said that country of origin labeling somehow creates a trade barrier for animals imported from Canada and Mexico. And so Congress continues to abide by the World Trade Organization, not recognizing that the World Trade Organization has changed considerably, and the United States government as a whole no longer relies upon it to determine whether or not domestic or U.S. citizens uh, deserve to have uh, the benefits of congressional enactments like country of origin labeling. So it's been a huge challenge, and the reason we have the World Trade Organization as a dark cloud hanging over country wards labeling, it's because the multinational meat packers are taking full advantage of that global entity that sides with them. And so um, it's the awareness that we're, we must create in working with the consumer groups and in trying to you know, issue news releases and trying to make uh, public statements about the importance of doing podcasts like this, uh, all of this is helping to create more awareness so the consumer can get engaged and call their member of Congress and urge them to support country of origin labels for beef. And a very simple request, and we're encouraging consumers everywhere to do that.
1: Yeah, and just another example of the, the mess that World Trade, World Health, UN, all of these uh, agency institutions have just uh, really... Messed our country up in so many uh, different ways. This is a perfect example when we're talking about our food uh, and the importance of it. Um, and you know, obviously, we're not, we didn't even get into supply chain issues and things of that nature. I want to ask you a question because it's something that hit me a little earlier. Who was responsible for um, beef? It's what for? It's what's for dinner that marketing program years
0: ago. Well, that was uh, after the beef checkoff program was first passed in 1985. And that's a program that requires every cattle producer to contribute $1 for every time they sell an animal. And that money is pooled together. It generates about $80 million a year. And early on in that program, we did some very uh, beneficial uh, actions such as that, the beef is what's for dinner promotion and advertisement, and most everybody uh, remembers that. But after that occurred, there's been very little uh, in terms of benefits derived from that mandatory program. In fact, today we're trying to reform it. Uh, we're trying to impart accountability and transparency in it, in a bill known as the OFF Act, O-F-F Act. And what it would also do is prevent any advocacy groups that, uh, that lobby in Congress from being a recipient of the checkoff dollars. We're concerned that the checkoff program has been deflected and it's now actually supporting the meat packers, not the cattle producers anymore. And that's why the the only thing that's in your memory is the beef is sweats for dinner, and that was done decades ago. Uh, we haven't done anything since, other than from our perspective, the money has been squandered and uh, not used effectively to help cattle producers. In fact, have been working against their financial interests by supporting the efforts of the multinational meat packers to further vertically integrate our industry.
1: And they're still forced to pay that dollar?
0: Every time they sell an animal, they're forced to
1: pay a dollar. So literally, they're not getting their money's worth.
0: Uh, in fact, it's working against them. They're actually paying for their own demise because uh, the entities that are recipients of those checkoff dollars are trying to prevent country of origin labeling. For example, they're trying to prevent any meaningful market reforms to the structure of the, the cattle markets, and they're trying to further promote, you know, uh, borderless uh, a borderless global world in which there are no tariffs. And as a result, we see our industry. Uh, you know, struggling under the weight of all the imports coming into this country. And if we look at our sister sheep industry, for example, uh, that industry today, 74% of the lamb in the United States is imported from either Australia or New Zealand. And that means the U.S. lamb producer is only providing about a quarter of the domestic demand for lamb. So we've outsourced the lamb industry simply because we have not paid attention to the adverse effects of bringing in cheaper, undifferentiated imports into an industry, that's a direct substitute for our U.S. production, and as a result, we've all but destroyed our commercial sheep industry out in the western part of the United States. Well,
1: and that's where RCAF USA comes in, I'm sure, um, and is strong, because you guys see those things. It's Again, it's history. It's actual fact. It's not speculation. It's not trying to scare people. It's letting them know, hey, by the way, this happened, um, you know, in the sheep industry. Um, and That's it right. could happen in the you know in in the beef industry or whatever the case might be. I mean I've seen this on the dairy side as I've told you in the past. Um, they look you know it, they had a wonderful marketing plan years ago, and they had Cal Ripken of the Baltimore Orioles and all these other people drinking milk and you know telling the story of the nutritional value, and now they find themselves upside down because nobody even buys bothered to fight the fight of, hey, soy milk is not milk. You, you know, you don't milk a soybean right. um, or and fill in the blank rice milk, whatever. So I think that they've really um, dropped, you know, these organizations really drop the ball and um, and politicians get hoodwinked or they just sell their souls or a combination of the bo- of both um, and unfortunately hurt our American farmers.
0: That's absolutely right. In fact, uh, the multinational meat packers and milk processors, they were very smart. They infiltrated all of the producer organizations, and as a result, those that are lobbying for for issues in Congress today are representing not just the producers, but also the integrators and the meat packers and those trying to vertically integrate the industry. So the producer's position is compromised before it ever enters the halls of Congress. And as a result, we've seen uh, in the dairy industry, as you mentioned, you know, we've lost eight out of every 10 dairy producers that were in business just over a generation ago have been wiped out from the industry. And we've lost nine out of every 10 hog producers have been wiped out. And in our cattle industry, over that same time period, we've lost over four out of every ten. We've lost forty-three percent of our cattle producers just in the course of a little over a generation. And it's because, as you said, the organizations that are representing uh, the, uh, producers in Congress really haven't been representing them. And that's how our calf actually was accepted two decades ago, was in recognition that the cattle producer did not did no longer had a voice. In Washington, D.C. because their voice was being overshadowed by the meatpacking industry and the meatpackers and all their allies were convincing Congress, whatever is good for the meatpacker must be good uh, for the cattle producer because of the trickle down theory. Obviously, that was an abject failure. Uh, It isn't true. And as a result, uh, we are there and others smaller organizations fighting the fight to try to restore competition to the marketplace for our industry and other industries.
1: Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. And that's why we like having you on uh, to give us updates and reminders. So, um, wrapping up, you mentioned about people calling, uh, their elected officials. Um, they obviously can do that, uh, and, and support RCAF USA and the different, um, uh, bills that you guys are trying to get put in place, not only to protect the, uh, you you know the the cattle producer but the american citizen as far as i'm concerned what else can they do is there anything else they can do like where they shop how they shop that type of thing
0: well once we have country origin labels uh, they could begin to shop for beef that is produced exclusively in the united states of america because by by their purchase of that product They will create demand for the cattle that are produced exclusively by U.S. cattle producers. So that's the first step. We must have beef labeled as to its origin, and that's really a simple request for consumers. They could call their member of Congress and say, we want to know where our beef is from, you know, provide us labels. And that would be extremely helpful for us. And that's the first step. We must have country of origin labeling in order for competition to be reinserted in our industry.
1: And, and I appreciate that. Like, And like you said, it's easy to do. It's a phone call, email, uh, that type of thing um, that people can do. And I know in the past when I've spoken with you, I also encourage people to go to, to uh, local uh, meat markets and and, um, and and facilities where you know that it, the, the protein was actually local.
0: And that's right. And they can ask their, the uh, meat manager in the grocery store, where did this meat come from? Is this meat that is exclusively produced in the United States of America? By having consumers ask that question, we will create uh, awareness and, and actually start to pull Congress towards this issue because the grocery managers will soon be asking their uh, heads uh, headquarters and their headquarters will soon be talking to Congress. So that's very helpful.
1: Yeah, well, and good luck with, uh, you know, maybe the Campaigns that come with that, um, you know, where you have—I uh, don't know if you guys—you uh, know—have other emails that are going out with, you know, trying to get uh, petition signatures and things of that nature. But um, I wish you all the best. I mean, we, you know, we're behind you 150 percent, we appreciate uh, our, all the hard work uh, from the farmers here in the United States. And um, you know, it's just like you've explained; it's just a upside down right now and, and that's not how we want to see it. So anyway our listeners can get involved, that's what we want to do. but Mr. Buller, thank you for taking the time to come on and um, hopefully we'll uh, get back with you later in the year.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much, Chris.
1: All right. You take care and have a, a great rest of the weekend. Uh, that does it for us. Uh, we'll talk with you on the Morning News Express with uh, Bob Miller and my, uh, Ryan Hedrick, um, Monday through Friday, 5, 56, 57, 50. We have uh, live uh, calls. Uh, and business updates, and then we'll be back here um, next uh, Saturday for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast. Just go to Apple Podcasts. You can grab it there. Thanks so much for being with us. Hope your weekend's going well and you're getting geared up for uh, a, a very enjoyable 4th of July uh, break for you. And of course, a celebration and declaration of independence of the uh, best country that's ever uh, existed on this earth. And um, as I mentioned uh, right before the break, we were going to be talking more about um, ESG, environmental social governance, and BlackRock, and, you know, a lot of the issues that I've talked about for many, many years. Um, And I'm joined uh, today, our guest, Mr. Robert Romano. He's the Vice President of Public Policy at Americans for Limited Government and uh, wrote a really good piece this week uh, on that whole issue of uh, BlackRock and uh, ESG and some interesting developments. How are you, Robert?
2: I'm doing very well. It's great to be on the show again. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for
1: taking the time to come back on. We appreciate it. Um, so I guess, if you will, just give our, our, uh, our listening audience a quick refresher on ESG and what it's all about.
2: Sure. Environmental, social, and governance investing, or impact investing, or economically targeting investing, or as uh, Larry Fink now wants to call it, conscientious capitalism. Others call it stakeholder capitalism. Uh, Does not put profit first, per se, rather uh, purpose, or um, uh, stakeholders uh, rather than shareholders, uh, people who are impacted, or institutions that are impacted, um, by corporations and the uh, in the natural resources category, but also in social issues. You see diversity, equity, and inclusion, racial and gender hiring quotas at major corporations, publicly traded corporations, um, and there's a variety of government incentives for tax deferred retirement savings that go into this. Uh, Labor Department regulations address about one-third of those via employer-based defined benefit and buying contribution plans, a uh, go back, you can go back to a Clinton administration regulation of 1994 that addressed part of this, 2008 the Bush administration addressed part of this, 2015 Obama addressed part of this, and 2020 the Trump Labor Department addressed it as well, and not one of them ever banned it um, in, in any capacity. Um, And so on the employer side, it's been, you know, kind of regulated there, allowing pension managers to make these types of investments that can take more than just profit into consideration. They can use non-pecuniary factors as well. Um, And there is some disagreement about whether a non-pecuniary factor can solely be a basis or if it needs to at least have an all things being equal, if it's profitable, you can do it. That's what Bush and Trump Labor Departments had done. But then there's the other two-thirds of it, which are the individual retirement accounts um, that, uh, uh, that are not the 401Ks and employer-based plans, but rather the ones you get for, say, BlackRock or Vanguard. And then there's the federal savings plan, as well as state and municipal pensions that um, also make these types of investment. There's over $32 trillion of retirement savings. Uh, the USSIF have estimated that about $8 trillion uh, of assets under management are uh, going toward ESG at this moment. And so it's been very impactful, it engages in agendas like decarbonization. Um, they want to get rid of oil. So they'll take over boards of directors of oil companies to make them not oil companies to restrict oil production or go after coal companies, etc. And then there's the DE&I stuff that uh, very much uh, is engaged in discriminatory practices that, in my view, violate Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And as far as restricting energy production, to uh, boost prices and uh, gouge consumers at the pump in order to incentivize green alternatives. Our view is that that violates antitrust law.
1: So uh, I guess, uh, you know, you touched on a lot there. And um, if we start to kind of pull it apart and look at it more individually, um, the ESG, the DEI, all these ridiculous uh, acronyms, in my opinion, are just cover... It seems like based on all my research and over the years of, of following it and, uh, and and trying to stay uh, abreast is that it's just another way for uh, those that are in charge of these huge amounts of money to um, use that money to, to, to kind of allocate that money the way that uh, best suits and benefits them, especially when it comes to their political bent.
2: Absolutely. They're in implementing political and social agendas um, and attempting to, I think, kind of transform uh, what we would think of as a capitalist model into something entirely different. Again, they're not pushing for profit. Um, they, they, they have purpose in mind, um, but that's why, when I look at it, I say, you need to attack this on antitrust grounds, you need to attack it on Title VII grounds. Because when you look at things like restricting energy production, that actually boosts prices and the profitability of a company like Exxon, which posted record profits this year when he had a production halt after COVID or during COVID. And then prices went to the moon thereafter because global production was grinding down. Um, and that, that, that they posted record profits last year. Um, and so, if you, if, if, if so, a labor department, um, you know, pe- a pecuniary rule um, is not going to really cut it. Uh, we shouldn't leave it up to accountants and uh, pencil necks at the labor department to try to, um, you know, forestall a, a, what's actually like a kind of communist style takeover of our capital markets.
1: So, um we we go back to BlackRock, uh, the largest asset manager in the world, running nine to ten trillion dollars, uh, a huge. Uh, amount of sway and, uh, and and power when it comes to that area. Um, they seem, and have, and it seems like for a while now, they've been all in on this. Um, I, if all the folks that listen to me for many, many years know, I think Larry Fink is a lapdog. He started first with the Clintons thinking he was going to be Treasury Secretary if she won, and then he spilled over to Obama, and now he's working... Uh, so closely, it seems like, with Biden, and especially with the connection of what's going to be done with all of our money um, over in Ukraine.
2: Absolutely. And he's saying now that, oh, the ESG, now that people have started to hear about it, he's like, oh, I don't want to call it ESG anymore. It's not environmental, social, and governance investing. It's decarbonization and, 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 and governance and social issues. It's like that's the same exact thing, Larry. You're not fooling anybody. It's the same agenda. Um, and that, that's why I think that Republicans um, really need to pay closer attention to this I think that what they've done heretofore has not been very effective at either identifying this for um, the scope of what it is—over uh, 8.4 trillion—it's um, USSIF—and they're a pro-ESG outfit, and so they kind of take out what they call greenwashing, but it's still eight trillion dollars. Other estimates by like Bloomberg have said that globally ESG could reach something on the order of fifty trillion or one third of all assets under management by twenty twenty five. Um and so unless something's done for example, restricting tax deferred retirement savings and, and say prohibit any, um, uh, you know, investments in companies that are violating antitrust law or are violating Title Seven. um, I think could go a long way to really, um, spearing this thing right in the belly. And, uh, you know, they did, and particularly if we have a recession coming on the way, this, uh, this thing's going to be on its back. And I think. Like a thousand knives in it and then set it on fire uh, while the blood's on the ground.
1: So, um, as you mentioned, uh, Larry Fink got caught. That's basically what what happened. Um, he was at uh, you know a little get together in at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and uh, he was trying to push back on ESG and and turn people's attention to a new shiny object or a different name or whatever it may be, and um, and, and and now you know you have to wonder you're saying stick it in the belly i would think that it's it's right to do that uh, to to make that push but i guess that the that begs the question who's doing anything about it
2: it's a, uh consumers are um they've been um engaging in boycotts um in areas where they identify agendas that they disagree with you look at bug light you look at target and that's kind of on the surface, but when you consider other industries, particularly energy, um, it's going to be a lot more difficult. The Labor Department rule basically says, even under the Trump administration, if it's profitable, it's cool, you can do it. Um, but as I noted, ExxonMobil was able to post record profits by engaging in cartel-like behavior to boost the price to the moon um, and to make it so that you can't afford to you know, uh, pay at the pump. Um, And so I think that um, simply uh, using the uh, prudent men's uh, standard of care under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act will be woefully inadequate. By the way, it only addresses about one-third of the uh, retirement savings, and so it's not a catch-all anyway. And so they need to go back to the drawing board. Uh, I, in my piece, I urge that the Justice Department Antitrust Division look at this collusive behavior amongst energy companies to boost green at the expense of carbon. Um, and also the, the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department to look at these companies that are blatantly engaged in racial discrimination, gender-based discrimination. They have racial and gender hiring quotas. That's another point of attack. Um, and, again, I think that the if you look at the IRS, there is no rules coming out of IRS on the individual retirement account, but you just couple what they do have the authority to do with the fact that antitrust is already prohibited, the fact that racial and sexual discrimination, religious discrimination are already prohibited. They could issue a rule that says you can't do these types of tax deferred investments into companies that we identify as violating federal law.
1: Yeah, I, it's just uh, such a scary thing. And, and it's such a rabbit hole. I'm so glad that Uh, Well, we've been on it for for years and years, and now it's uh, becoming more uh, mainstream, if you will, Um, and uh, that's just a a very positive thing. We just need to keep uh, our boot on the neck for sure. We're going to take a a quick break, and when we come back, we'll uh, wrap up our conversation uh, with my guest today, Mr. Uh, Robert Romano. He's the Vice President of Public Policy at Americans for Limited Government. And by the way, you can get the piece we're talking about talking about on Blackrock and many other uh, pieces at no cost just go to uh, getliberty.org and uh, you can grab it there as i said at no cost
0: your mind is made up you won't even try This is it. News and free talk for all of Mid Maryland. 930 WFMD.
1: Let's hear it, Dalton. This Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts. You can grab it there. And wrapping up our conversation this morning, and it's, it's very, very important. I mean, again... We've been talking about it literally for decades here on the program. I mentioned the first I heard about it was uh, decades ago with um, the uh, the New York City and New York State pension funds, and they were at that time calling it socially responsible investing, and then they've twisted it now to ESG and DEI and all the other garbage, uh, the false acronyms uh, that are out there. So we want to make sure that we stay on top of this uh, all of our listeners definitely will be well-educated and up to speed on what's going on. Um, But it's not easy. You know, as our guest uh, was telling us in the uh, previous segment, Mr. Robert Romano, uh, who's the uh, VP of Public Policy at Americans for Limited Growth, uh, you know, you've got trillions and trillions of dollars involved here. So um, it's it's not easy to, uh, to, to just do a, a workaround on these people. So, you know, Robert, um, I, I mentioned earlier, what is... If there is, like, what are the first couple steps that can be taken to combat this so that um, Larry Fink and others don't get away with just the spin, if you will, by changing changing ESG?
2: Well, uh, I think former President Trump has a pretty comprehensive um, proposal here. He wants to get Congress to act on legislation, but also he wants to do an executive order Um, to go after ESG, which can direct federal agencies um, that have authority over retirement savings, including the Labor Department, including the IRS. And so my suggestion is to go and attack them on uh, antitrust grounds for uh, restricting energy production and for racist hiring practices at megacorporations that violate Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. We just saw the Supreme Court act on Title VI related to college admissions. Um, And so very similarly, Congress has prohibited employment discrimination under the basis of race. Uh, There's an affirmative action style um, ruling back in uh, 1979 called Steelworkers v. Weber. That needs to be overturned as well. Somebody needs to challenge that. So if you direct these agencies to restrict uh, tax-deferred retirement savings into companies that are violating federal law, antitrust, Title VII, I think we go a long way to dealing with this. State governors are also stepping up in um, red states saying that they're going to restrict retirement state pensions that um, uh, may or may not have been going into this, Uh, some of that seems a little posturing because the states that were really involved with this would be blue states like New York and California and Colorado and so forth. Um, That there was no, there wasn't never, uh, you know, like a big, I I think ESG investment coming out of the, for example, the Florida state pension system. Uh, But nonetheless, there are, I, I think many states are also, going at companies and banks um, that are state contractors and saying, if you're involved with this stuff, we don't want to do business with you. So I think that a clear message is beginning to be sent um, but we mustn't let ourselves become complacent just because Republicans are talking a good game now, uh, but they might still be short on policy. I mean, Trump actually believed that he banned this, but the labor regulation actually explicitly said that it hadn't been banned. Um, And so there's still some obstacles there that can, um, I think, uh, politically... Um, hinder efforts even if Republicans are successful
1: in 2024. Yeah, no, I agree because you have these agencies uh, doing these workarounds so it doesn't go through Congress and it's sickening because uh, then the voter isn't heard uh, like they should be. A couple quick things for everybody to know. One, on this whole ESG issue, if you do a little bit of research and educate yourself, you'll see that there are quite a few uh, studies that have been done that not only are they using money in ways that you probably don't agree with, it would make you feel dirty and you would want to go take a shower after you learn. The second part of that is they underperform. So they're actually, by this ESG, DEI nonsense, you're not making don't have the opportunity to make as much money. So that's the other thing. And lastly, I'll just end with this. And, Robert, you can, you know, give your two cents on it. But this, you know, Larry Fink admitted at the Aspen Ideas Festival um, that Florida's decision to pull $2 billion in assets from BlackRock, that hurt, along with all the other... um, conservative, uh, you know, conservative, fiscal conservative uh, state managers. So that's, I think, really important as well.
2: Yes, I think that they did. They were doing business with BlackRock. I was just not, I, I was, it was unclear how much of an ESG investment that these red states were even making, or if they had even ever allowed it. Um, the fact that they're going forward and saying we're not going to allow it uh, going forward is good. Um, But that means there was a lack of reporting that red states were making these investments. And so I would want to know how much of a hit did these ESG funds take Um, But, yeah, they shouldn't do business with these companies. But KPMG uh, notes in a recent study that 82% of publicly traded corporations are including ESG sustainability-like goals in their corporate charters. I mean, it includes everything from uh, energy we've mentioned, uh, but also entertainment, media, uh, even News Corp and Fox uh, Corporation, which owns Fox News. They're engaged in a kind of ESG-style um, they, they have a huge push on diversity as well um, that I think that uh, probably viewers are starting to identify, um, and maybe that has something to do with uh, why, um, you know, certain uh, hosts aren't on that, on that uh, channel anymore, um, uh-huh. is that people are starting to push back against this, and then you're going to have even more limited voices. It was used by Twitter in their ESG pamphlet. They were bragging about the censorship under diversity and inclusion grounds and so there's actually a, a wider application i think of many of the challenges that conservatives and republicans have been facing Um, in a corporate sense, but also on places like social media, actually also trace their roots into ESG. And so just as a mere matter of self-preservation and survival, they have to push back on this and not depend. The free market is not intervening the way you would hope because we don't have a free market. You have a very manipulated market and a controlled market. Um, and so if they're violating antitrust, I don't care if they would prefer not to go that route. They have to act in their own interests.
1: Right. Yeah. It's uh, All we can do is continue to shine the light on it like you did with your piece uh, on BlackRock and other pieces that people can get at. Get liberty.org for no cost. Um, I mean, we're talking about a guy, Larry Fink, who's a wannabe. Um, he's an outsider, it seems like, just working so hard to get in these certain clicks. I mean, this is also a guy who said a couple years ago that there's too many old white men at BlackRock. Then why don't you resign? Because that's what you are. So this is all just a, a farce. It's you know it, it's all fake. And you mentioned uh, Fox News. That's you know they're they're they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Their ratings are going to crud. So every all these companies deserve what they're getting, and I hope it continues.
2: I I, I think it will. Um, but just realize that they, they don't, they're not trying to sell us oil. They're not trying to sell us beer. Um, And so any industry that's being targeted by this type of investment is being marked for death. They don't want more Fox News. That helps Republicans get the word out that they might actually be able to challenge this. They don't want oil production. That's why they're taking over the boards of directors and they think beer uses too much water and you know they'll, they'll even go after paper products like comic books and uh role-playing games i mean because oh too much paper um you on down the line that the, these industries are marked for death so they're happy they love the boycotts uh, just keep that in mind as consumers that um there, there is a downside um to focusing so if, if, if and the other thing is if all the uh, Boston Tea Party had done was keep on throwing tea in the harbor, we wouldn't have gotten very far um, at overturning the British either. And what's happening now is a revolution uh, in our economy that if we don't recognize it and identify it and counterdict it, we're going to lose.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, We've got to run. Uh, Thanks a lot, Robert. A lot of really good information. Again, folks can get your uh, article, this article we talked about today and others at uh, GetLiberty.org. And have a great Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day. Same to you. Um, And that does it. And unfortunately, we're up against a hard break. Uh, I hope uh, everybody does have a great Fourth of July. Um, And uh, I'll be talking to you on the Morning News Express and more here uh, on the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Mm
0: Past editions of this program are available in the Audio Vault at wfmd.com. A service of Holtzapple Heating and Air Conditioning. News Radio 930, WFMd Frederick,
1: a connoisseur media radio station. Seven O.